Adele? Over here, Nora, in the dining room. What are you up to? Oh, hi, Nora. I'm just trying to straighten up this new wall mirror I have. Mirror? Why would you get a new mirror? Every time I look in one of these days, it just cracks. It's kind of ghostly thing, you know? Everyone knows that, but it takes a lot of talent and training for a ghost to appear in a mirror without shattering it. Only Bloody Mary has those kinds of skills. <laughs> well, I know that. And this isn't a regular kind of a mirror, though. This is one of those new AI mirrors. AI? What's that? Oh, AI stands for Apparitional Intelligence. This mirror has some kind of device in it that is supposed to see your current ghostly reflection and figure out what you would look like if you were alive. Hmm, so it looks into the past. Oh, not exactly. It shows you what you would look like today, not when you died. Hmm, but I would be 186 years old oh. if I was still alive today. I'd look like a wrinkled old prune. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm creeping up on 189 years old. I'm not sure that I want to see that. How depressing. Hmm. I look better as a ghost with my pallid torn flesh and cobweb covered hair than yeah. I would as a living old prune. <laughs> I'm not too sure what benefit of this AI stuff is. Well, let's look at the brochure. Maybe the brochure says something about it. Oh, okay, I see. There is an adjustment dial on the side over there that lets you turn up or down the age that the mirror is showing. <laughs> okay, well, that makes more sense. I would like to see my beautiful Victorian visage again. <laughs> but why did you get this fancy new contraption anyway? Well, it was a gift from Dave, my second husband overall. First one in the afterlife. He's trying to get back into my good graces after I threw him out of the Pioneer Hotel last year. He's down in Santa Clara, and he says this AI thing is all the rage down there. Hmm. You know, that is a big city these days. Well, <laughs> doesn't work. Well, let's see. I'll turn it on. Ooh. Wow. Gosh, it sounds crazy. <laughs> Only we are allowed to be scary. I think it's warming up. At least it's not steam-powered. <laughs> Could you imagine? It might be, you know, liable to explode. Well, this... We can't have Steam explosions. Oh. Right. Do you see anything? Not yet. Wait, it's coming into focus. I see two shapes. Oh, my ghostliness. That's me and you. Oh, we look kind of strange. Not exactly alive, but not exactly dead either. Mm. Wiggle that dial there. See if, if we can go younger. Ooh, let's go <laughs> younger. Oh, whoa. <laughs> That's worse. Now we look constipated. Oh, no. I'm pretty sure I was more attractive than that in life. Oh, me too. I think it has a way uh, to go before this is perfected. Shut it off. It's making my head swim. Indeed. Does it make me look like I went to hell in a handbag? <laughs> Maybe it needs better lighting. I might put it out in the front parlor. Not sure that will help. This technology is getting more and more complicated. Uh -huh. We're recording this podcast. <laughs> I'm dealing with emails, <laughs> and there's AI stuff. Oh. oh, we Victorians were pretty good at adapting to new technologies, well, but this is unheard of. Right, it it's asking a lot. The safety and regulation wasn't catching up. I know. I remember the simpler kinds of inventions that we had, like when the photographic camera came in. Remember? Well, yeah, 
I can recall when I had my first photograph taken, I think that was back in the mid-1870s right. when Jimmy and I were living in San Francisco. Oh. We went to a portrait studio there and had a picture taken as soon as we could afford it. Oh, boy, you got me beat there, Nora. Since I died in 1858, I never had the chance to get a nice photographic portrait made. I do recall the studio being open in Petaluma though, a few years before my death, but the technology was still pretty young. You know, I wonder how much of an influence photography had on Victorian life in general. Well, that makes me think I remember a friend of ours. Oh, I know exactly who you mean. Uh-huh. Addie Gossage Healy. Right. She can tell us a lot more about photography and the Victorian age, mm-hmm. and especially about photographing the dead and spirit yeah. photographs and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, her studio's right down the street on Main Street. Let's drop in on her and see what she can tell us. Shall we turn off the recorder thing? No, no, let's just leave it on. It's just a half block or so to get over there. Whew, it's a nice day out at least. Yeah, it's very foggy and cold. Mm, the way we like it, but not freezing, just a little damp. Oh, exactly, <laughs> just how it should be, a little mist here and there. Ooh. Yeah, it's better for our decomposing skin. So her studio is just up here on 816 Main Street. Remind me, for our living audience, what building is here now? Oh, well, this is where the Wickersham building is now. That was built in 1910 after Addie's studio was sold. It's the Seared Restaurant now. Seared. A restaurant that's been burned? Oh. <laughs> How do we do that? Yeah. Hello, Addie. Well, hello, Adele. Hi, Nora. So great to see you, Addie. It's mm-hmm. been a little while since we were here last. I know. It's like you're avoiding me or something. <laughs> oh, not at all. We've just been really busy with our podcast. I heard about that. It's all over the ghost waves. You're getting rave reviews. <laughs> we just keep trying to pierce that old veil of death, you know? Yeah. I heard that some grumpy spirits were trying to shut you down. Is that right? Oh, well, the big six, obviously. They don't like us to tell their, their real stories like it really was. They want to keep their reputations intact and always be the center of attention. But we don't speak of them anyway. They're not that interesting. (laughs) Well, you ghouls never let any gossip get you down. Are you looking to get a new portrait done for the podcast? Actually, we wanted to interview you and ask you some questions about photography in the Victorian age, and especially how it relates to death and the spirit world. Oh my, that is definitely right up my alley. Oh gosh, do you have time right now for us, Addie? Certainly. I'm not seeing much foot traffic in the studio these days. Hmm. I might get driven out of business by those new AI mirrors. If ghosts can see their reflections, especially looking more vibrant and youthful, then they won't need my spirit photographs anymore. Well, I wouldn't worry too much about them. I hear they are not particularly accurate or flattering. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. I think they're just a fad. I hope so. Anyway, let's go back into the parlor and have a chat. Ooh, is that your new camera? Yes, that is my new six and a half by eight and a half inch dry plate portrait camera. I have several others that I use for field photographs and especially architectural photography, but this is my new baby. Hmm, okay, so to get started, let's hear a little about yourself, where you grew up, how you got into photography, and things like that. 
Well, I'm a Petaluma ghoul born and bred. My father <laughs> was Jerome Gossage and my mother was Rachel Henry Gossage. They were from Ohio and Pennsylvania and came to Sonoma County in 1859. They purchased land up on the Sebastopol Road near the Washoe House, where they started a farm. I was born the following year in 1860. I went to the Cinnabar School and grew up attending all of the community social functions back in the day. Ooh, 1860, that was a good year. Ooh. Well, I heard you were also a talented singer, is that right? Oh, I don't know about that, but singing has been a particular joy in my life. And I am still asked to sing on ghostly occasions. It's not easy to master the spooky wail, you know. Ooh, yeah. I must have some banshee in my ancestry somewhere. Wow. <laughs> so you were raised here in town. Then you married Edwin Ruthven Healy in 1881, correct? Yes, Edwin was from Iowa. Oh. But he had been working as a painter in Petaluma for several years. We met, were married, and then moved to Oakland to set up a photography studio in 1886. Okay, so let's go back a little bit first. Can you tell us about where photography was invented and how it developed? <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> ha, developed. You're a hoot, Nora. Yes, anyway, photography has a much longer history than you would think. It actually goes back to the early discovery of what we call the camera obscura. That's Latin for dark chamber. Oh, so the word camera itself just means room. Is that right? Correct. A camera obscura is any room that is totally dark, except for a pinhole on one side of the room that lets in light. The light rays shine across the room and are reflected on the back wall in an expanded size. The phenomenon you see is a clear picture of what is outside, but flipped upside down. Why does that happen? Well, light bounces off of everything we see outside, and only in a dark room with a tiny opening can we filter out all of the overlapping rays and see just the ones traveling in a straight line through that pinhole. This is exactly how the human eye works. Light travels through the pupil and hits different kinds of receptors on the back of the eye. The signals picked up by the receptors then travel to the brain. But because the rays are squeezing through the tiny opening, the ones near the bottom are traveling upward and strike the top of the image on the back of the wall or the back of the eye and vice versa. The top ones are pointing down, therefore the image we see is upside down. Oh, so we actually see things upside down and then our brain reverses them for us. Right, again, cameras obscura are actually known from ancient Chinese and Greek writings. So, they go back several thousand years. But the images in a camera obscura are just what is outside and not permanent in any way. It is not until the 18th century that the second invention was made, which made photography possible. Okay, well, what was that? That was the discovery of light-sensitive chemicals. In the early 1700s, several scientists in Germany and France were experimenting with different kinds of chemical mixtures that would either get darker or lighter when exposed to sunlight. However, the chemicals would either wash off or fade away entirely pretty quickly. It wasn't until the 1820s that the Frenchman Niepce was able to permanently fix an image to a thin pewter plate, but it took hours or even days of exposure to work. Well, that wouldn't be very useful for portraits. You'd have to sit there for such a long time, it couldn't be done. Nope, but his friend, Louis Stiger, invented a much simpler process in the 1830s named after him the Daguerre type process. When I say 
simpler, I actually mean it didn't take hours or days of exposure to create a photograph. The process itself was not that simple. You had to take highly, take a very highly polished sheet of silver-plated copper and treat it with mercury fumes to make it light-sensitive and keep it completely in the dark. Once you put it into a camera, you had to expose it from anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes, depending on the amount of light you had, then completely close it off again. You then treated it with more chemicals to remove the light sensitivity, rinse it, dry it, and then put it behind glass to keep it from getting damaged. Mm -hmm. The image itself will either look like a positive or a negative, depending on what angle you view it from and how you how it captured the light. Oh, the daguerreotype images are also very delicate too, aren't they? Oh, definitely. You had to be very careful handling them, or you could scuff or even wipe the image off. Many early daguerreotypes have been smudged over the years, but Daguerre introduced his process to the world in 1839, and it took off. The process was brought to America around 1840 by Samuel Morse, the inventor of Morse code, and all-around artist and inventor. And new techniques were developing every year that improved upon it. I think that Jimmy and I had our portrait done on a tintype. When did those come around? Well, with the difficulty and expense of a daguerreotype, remember it's on silver-plated copper, so it wasn't cheap. Some of the first changes were to use other metals and paper as the medium on which the light-sensitive chemicals were coated. The calotype process, invented in 1841, used silver iodide on paper, but had difficulty with low-contrast details. The collodion process came around in the 1850s. It used glass plates coated with wet chemicals and had to be exposed and processed within about 15 minutes. The ambrotype and and the tintype were the most common forms by the 1860s. The dry chemical processes followed later and then film came about in the 1880s, invented by George Eastman. So when did the first photographic studio come to Petaluma? In January of 1856. Giles Pease Kellogg was the first photo- photographer to open a studio in Petaluma. This was four years before I was born and just two years before you passed. Isn't that right, Adele? Yes, Giles Pease Kellogg. Huh, that's, that's right. I, I do recall seeing his studio on Main Street. This is from his ad in the Sonoma County Journal, September 19, 1856. Quote, Ambrotypes, daguerreotypes, and photographs on paper are now taken by Kellogg at his Daguerrean rooms equal to the celebrated Philadelphia and New York ambrotypes and photographs, which of late have become so popular in the East. The sitting for ambrotypes is only one-fifth as long as for daguerreotypes, thus enabling the artist to obtain a better expression than by any other known process. For the taking of true and correct pictures of children and infants, the ambrotype method is unapproachable. The public is respectfully invited to call and examine for themselves. Instruction given in the art, G.P. Kellogg, Daguerrean Artist, Main Street, Petaluma. I wish I had gone in and had my portrait done back then. He's related to Kellogg's cereal. I bet he is. Well, you could also have been instructed in art. Absolutely. You might have become Petaluma's first female photographer, Adal. Oh, well, I guess I was destined to become a ghost instead. <laughs> so how did these developments in the photographic arts start to impact your average Victorian person? Well, the biggest impact came with the Civil War. 
prior to the 1850s, having your portrait done was still pretty uncommon and relatively expensive. Hmm. Early processes also took so long in the sitting that different kinds of props and stands were used to hold one's head in place, keeping your facial features in focus. (laughs) This made them kind of unsightly. As the sitting times improved and costs came down, photographers started specializing in pocket-sized portraits that could be fixed on paper and cheap enough to be traded among friends. These were called carte de visite, French for visiting cards. (laughs) Carte de visite. De visite. This was an early form of what the pre-mortals call social media, isn't it? Exactly. And at the start of the Civil War, young men all over the country were enlisting and they wanted to have their pictures taken before they went off to fight. Now, this didn't affect us as much in California, but in small towns back east, the portrait studios were doing a booming business in these kinds of carte de visite images. Many of the soldiers probably realized that these would be the last or sometimes only images of them before they died. Oh, that's quite sad to think about. Yes, and and families who lost their sons, brothers, husbands, fathers, and other relatives held tightly onto these photographs for generations. But the most impactful photography was actually on the battlefield itself. The Civil War was the first one which was photographed in such dramatic detail, and it largely becomes attributed to one man, Matthew Brady. I've heard of him. He's probably the most famous photographer of the mid-1800s, isn't he? Yes, but actually he gets a lot of credit for work that was done by others. In 1844, Brady opened a photographic studio in New York, and he became famous for photographing American celebrities, including Daniel Webster, Edgar Allan Poe, and Andrew Jackson, among others. Brady, like most other photographers, began to capitalize on the carte de visite and started to build a market for soldiers' photographs. He even ran an ad in the New York paper stating, quote, you cannot tell how soon it may be too late, end quote. <laughs> it's right at the target, doesn't it? Oh, he's one of my idols. <laughs> Your son, husband, father, etc. could be dead soon. So take this picture now before it's too late. Oh, Pretty grim. Yes, so by 1861, he starts to think he would actually like to document the battlefields and the war itself. He applies for permission from Abraham Lincoln and moves his studio to Washington, D.C. to be close to the fighting. Lincoln gave him permission to photograph the battlefields as long as he financed it himself. He hired more than 20 other photographers as assistants and gave each of them a traveling dark room and all of the equipment they needed. Then he set them out with different Union Army detachments where they were, where they documented the soldiers in camp, the officers, and the battlefield after the fighting had ended. Yeah. Oh, my ghost. I remember those images at the time. They were haunting. Yeah. They were. Brady was on the scene at the first battle of Bull Run in July of 1861 and was so close to the action that he was nearly captured. After that, he tended to direct the assistants from Washington and rarely went to the battlefields himself. But he collected the photographs they took, selected the best ones, and developed exhibits from them. In 1862, he opened an exhibition of photographs he called, quote, the Dead of Antietam. In a New York gallery, these included graphic pictures of dead soldiers in the places where they were killed. It was a striking exhibit on the horrors of war. No one could argue that the war was just going to be a picnic after seeing those kind of images. That's right. Mm -hmm. 
Indeed, since the photographers sometimes only had access to the battlefield several days after fighting had ended, many of the dead were bloating and in the first stages of decomposition. The smell must have been horrendous. And there were initially no organized military units that dealt with the bodies, were there? No. In most cases, soldiers would make sure their name was pinned to their clothing in some form with their home or family address, if possible. If the Union Army won, then the contrabands would usually do the job of recovering the dead. Wow. Well, the contrabands, I know, were were freed or escaped slaves, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. As the Union Army took territory along the coast of Virginia and the Carolinas, that enslaved population would join the Union ranks and get paid to carry out a lot of the tasks that white soldiers were either not equipped to do or didn't want to. Wow. No one wanted to, wanted to go back onto the battlefield and collect the dead, but someone had to do it. The Confederates would commandeer people who were still enslaved to do the dirty work. Yeah. On either side, the winners would collect their dead and send them home if they were lucky enough to be identified or bury them in military cemeteries, like the one at Arlington. The enemy dead were usually thrown into mass graves on the battlefield itself. Hmm. I know they didn't bury everyone. Many young men were left in the woods or other places where they died, sometimes for years before they were found again. Then when they finally came to recover the bodies, there was nothing left but bones. And in those cases, they might only collect the skulls and long bones. For many years after those battles, visitors would come across the bones of a soldier who died there, sometimes died in great agony. There must be a lot of ghosts wandering around those places. Oh, my ghostliness. I imagine so. <laughs> well, in some places, some places like the sunken road at Antietam, the dead were piled up like cordwood. The ghosts were not very happy about that. I went on vacation there some years back, and they seemed pretty grumpy to me. <laughs> they do tend to wander into town looking for some nice tavern to haunt <laughs> or a basement to get some peace and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but most casualties of the war died from disease. Uh, Brady's assistants didn't photograph that very much, though, did they? Not really. They There were many photographs taken of the wounded and of the hospitals where they were treated. But the mass casualties that came from dysentery, typhus, cholera, or other infectious diseases were usually not great subjects. Mm-hmm. They tend to be overlooked. Brady was expecting that there would be a huge market for his photographs after the war. But people did not want to be reminded of the horror and brutality. Yeah. He didn't make much money in the end. He tried to sell them to the U.S. government as well, hoping they would want accurate documentation of the war. But even there, he was barking up the wrong tree. He ended up blind and penniless in in a New York hospital and died in 1896. How sad. It must have been really difficult to send the dead home from the battlefields or even the camps if they died from disease. Yes, The distance they would have to be transported was an issue. As you both know, embalming was not a common practice in the mid-19th century. When someone died, you only had a few days to get them in the ground before they started to deteriorate. Embalming is the practice of preventing decomposition in a body, originally for medical research, but more usually for the purpose of prolonging the time needed for burial. The Army Medical Corps commissioned medical embalmers to prepare the bodies of dead Union officers for shipping back home to their families during the war. This was a private service available to other soldiers whose families couldn't afford it as well. After Lincoln's death, the practice gained wider attention and became part of the whole Victorian approach 
to fascination with death in general. Ooh, yes, melancholiacs like Gaspar. <laughs> okay, so that brings us to another common Victorian practice, photographing dead family members as if they were alive. Ah, yes, my favorite. This is what's called <laughs> memento mori photographs, which translates to, quote, remember you must die. Oh, you never forget that. Memento mori. <laughs> oh, boy. That's right. Every day is like we're dead. It's also called post-mortem photography. The practice of keeping memorabilia from loved ones who have passed on is nothing new. It goes way back in time with paintings depicting someone who had recently passed. But photography ad added this new element where we could see our loved ones as they were in life one last time to keep a permanent reminder of it. Initially, death portraits were usually showing someone in repose with their eyes closed as if in sleep, but especially with children, it started to become more common to show them with their eyes open or in a pose such as sitting in a chair. Since infant mortality was so high, these were likely the only photographs a family would have of their loved ones. Yes. Hmm, I don't find that morbid in any way. It seems really thoughtful in my opinion. But for some reason, it is the stuff of nightmares for modern mortals. Pictures of dead people pretending to be alive especially children, pretty creepy, because sometimes the eyes would be open, so they might have been stitched open, or that might have been, eyes might have been closed, and they were painted on the eyelids, right, Nora? Mm, that's true. Yeah. Really, really Ooh. true. Yes, great art. The practice fell off as healthcare improved. Children and adults were dying less often. Plus, as film came around and household cameras became common, people were able to take a lot more snapshots of their family in life, and they didn't need to have death portraits done anymore. So how does the spirit photography fit into all this? Well, almost from the beginning, people began to think they could capture the spirit world using photography. Spiritualism was growing around the world in the Victorian era. We covered that to some degree with Reverend Waugh. Oh, oh, I know. I heard that episode. Those fraudsters he was going on about were some of the first to get the idea that you might be able to fake a photograph of a ghost to prove their skills at communicating with the dead. <laughs> right. Or the lights go up and down or the musical instruments play. Obviously, some of those first attempts are pretty pitiful. I mean, come on, putting a sheet over your head and standing in the corner, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> they soon learned that you could make double exposures. Take one picture with a glass plate, then take another one on top of it. The most convincing ones didn't try too hard to make the ghost obvious. They needed to be subtle about it. Yes, the ones were a fully recognizable person's face is floating behind someone is not convincing when you can see other parts of the background not matching up with the foreground. Who do they think they're pulling the veil over? Early Photoshop. Mm. It's not easy to make it realistic. Plus, we post-mortals know that it's up to the ghost to decide to appear on the glass plate or the film. We have to make ourselves visible in the mortal realm. It's not up to the photographer. So the incentive to fake the photographs by spiritualist mediums just dominated the practice of spirit photography for the entire Victorian era? Yes. Pretty much. It did eventually go in new directions as well. In the 1890s, scientists in Europe were experimenting with electrography, which was the photography of electric fields. Oh. This eventually resulted in the 1930s development of Kirlian photography, named after Russians... Semyon and Valentina Kirlian. 
This technique was where photographic film was placed between energized conductors and images were produced showing a silhouette of an object or a person surrounded by an aura of colored light. By the 1970s, this was taken up by practitioners of parapsychology who believed that these were images of the soul or sometimes spirits of the dead. <laughs> they wouldn't foul us with that. I, <laughs> I wouldn't mind showing up as a glowing aura around someone. Oh, no, especially if it was really colorful, like oh. your aura. Oh, and you already aura, do. That's right. Ever seen a rainbow aura? Ooh. That would be you. Purely in photography might be really fun, but I've never had the chance to try it out. I don't think it has anything to do with our post mortal realm, though. Hmm. So we got a little sidetracked from your personal story in this conversation, didn't we? Let's straighten up and get serious. We sure did. After you were married to Edwin Healy and moved to Oakland, when did you come back to Petaluma, Addie? Well, we set up a couple of studios in places around California. First Oakland, then San Francisco, St. Helena, and Hanford. But I convinced Edwin to come home in 1896, and we set up the studio here. This one was open until 1905, and we were both very active in fraternal organizations, Edwin in the Pythians and myself in the Rathbone Sisters. Eventually, though, we retired to Berkeley, where our daughter Myrtle was at university. We both died in 1923 of ill health. I was only 63 years of age. Edwin decided to move on from the afterlife back in the early 1930s, while I decided to come back to Petaluma as a spirit photographer and reopen my studio. This is what I love to do in the place I love to do it. Oh, I know there were many other photographers in Petaluma in the Victorian era. Where would some of our mortal listeners go to learn about them? First of all, there is a wonderful website called Petaluma Pioneers that shows some of the many portraits of the citizens of our town, taken by our talented photographers. There are also short biographies of each photographer and information about where and when we had studios open. Also, many of the photographs are of unknown people, so anyone whose family has been here for a number of generations might recognize someone and help put a name to a face. Oh, and I should mention that over at the Carnegie Library, Sarah Cassidy helps the mortal staff organize and display so much photographic material of our town. There is still so much to learn. Mm -hmm. You're more up on this internet technology than we are. Oh, yeah. oh, I try to keep up with things. I've been a gadget aficionado <laughs> since I was a small girl, mm. looking through the window of the Ross and Ormsby Gallery, where they took miniature photographs and would put them on the face of a watch dial. Oh, wow. I've never seen anything like that. I want to see it. I really want to see that. It was not very common and didn't become very popular, but I was intrigued by how tiny they were. Oh, yeah. Mm, I believe you have answered a lot of our questions about photography, its history, and influence on the Victorian era, especially regarding spirits and the dead. We should probably head out and let you get back to your cameras. The people and spirits of Petaluma love you. <laughs> Drift on out of here. Yes. Definitely. I'm exhausted from the photographic information overload. Oh. Well, thank you, ladies, for coming by. It's been a lovely chat. Let's do a quick podcast portrait for you before you leave. Oh, yes. We can do it with one of those old-timey Western backdrops, just for some irony. <laughs> Ooh, I love the idea. Cow ponies are fine. Yes, that sounds fabulous. But let's sign off the podcast okay. first. Okay, what does RIP stand for? Rest, Rest in Petaluma. Petaluma.
Hey, you can find us on Instagram at Petal Luminaries. Send us your ghost stories at our new reincarnated email at hex at petaluminaries.xyz. This is a Petaluminaries production featuring Sky Bailey, inhabited by Adele Bayless, and Binky Thorson, inhabited by Nora Berry. Audio recording by Rio Helmy, edited by Tom Whitley. And today, our special ghost, Rio Helmy, inhabited by Addie Gossage Healy. This is a Petaluminaries podcast, copyright 2024. I found this photograph underneath broken picture glass. Turn your face to black and white. Beautiful, haunting side. Looked into an angel smile, captivated all the How did she know?